Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed uh, Ed the Recluse Condon. Ed, I see that you are still... Uh, I see that you are still in an undisclosed location. Uh, yeah, I am. I had meant to be back in D.C. by now, uh, <laughs> but, but it, it didn't quite shake out. Um, there, there were some phone calls that needed to be made. There was, I, you know, look, basically it would, I had intended to get up very early this morning and drive back to DC, which would take somewhere in the region of five and a half hours. Um, and it, it turned out that was just not a good window to be in the car and unavailable, uh, you know, there's some mountains there that have to be crossed. There's some tunnels and it just, it was not a good time. So push back the departure. I'm, I am committed. I'm going to, I'm definitely, definitely coming back. And, uh, probably right after we finish recording this podcast, I'm sure promise. <laughs> I don't actually care. I mean, it doesn't, I, this may surprise you, but it doesn't make a difference to me in the slightest where you are. Um, uh, I, I mean, in so, as long as you have an internet connection and you can go to things on the East coast when it's necessary to go to things on the East coast, I, 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 I must confess, it I does not keep me up at night to know where you are or where you aren't, but it does, um, it does interest our listeners and, and listeners, I want to affirm you in that. I'm not saying that I don't care and you do. And therefore, you know, you, I'm, I'm, I'm clear they I, care I, about I me care. more. I'm clear. Yeah, they, they do. Um, our listeners, at least some of our listeners, do care a great deal where you are. Last week, you spoke about being um, kind of in the in undisclosed location of your family's lakefront uh, cabin. Uh, cottage? I mean, is it your English? Is it's it a cottage. cottage. We, call it, a co- we call it a cottage in the family. Um, I near the, you, you, you teased me at one point um, when we were calling to catch up on what was going on during the day. And I told you sort of what my morning it consisted of. And you said, you're buying a house up there, aren't you? And <laughs> I said, no, no. And actually I have, I tried to buy a house. Actually, mm-hmm. I called the realtor. I said, I'm interested. I, you know, tell me about this place. And unfortunately it was already under contract. And mm-hmm. I being, you know, while spiritually from around here and certainly, you know, in terms of my, my family, my roots are here. I betrayed my, my big city living and said, so, Oh, so that it's under contract. In other words, you'd make them an offer they can't refuse. Exactly. And I was yeah. told um, that the seller and the buyer had, had shaken hands and that was the end of the matter. And mm. I was a little disappointed, That's but I, I had to, I had to respect their respect for uh, an offer placed and accepted. So. I would urge you, Ed, to be careful to mention, making mention of the fact that you almost bought a place that's under contract, because we're, what I was saying is that some of our listeners um, who heard you talk about your family's cottage last week um, and heard you give, you know, give some clues as to the location of said cottage have really been making an effort to triangulate your location. And you did. You made some, I would say, unless you were dropping breadcrumbs on purpose, you made perhaps some tactical errors. You made mention of um, some details of the town that you've visited. You made mention of um, the local, the name of the local newspaper, which I didn't remember because, again, I you don't could, care. Could not even. I yeah. I I could not care less if you paid me. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, also, I guess I didn't remember because I actually do know where your undisclosed location is. Um, but uh, but our some of our listeners have been trying to take these context clues and triangulate your location, which seems to me to be kind of um, a, a worthwhile and um, and and noble pursuit on their part. Of sort of where in the world is um, Edward F. Condon, if you will? And um, I don't know. Is anybody getting close? 
Uh, some people have gotten close. The 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 closest person uh, said that they they believed I was in Mercer County, Pennsylvania, um, and I am familiar with Mercer County, Pennsylvania. And it is I want to be very clear here a lovely county. It is beautiful. It has much to recommend. The people there are wonderful, but I am not in Mercer County. Wow, that even there you gave more of a clue than you may have intended to because. You have not denied being in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I, I, no, but the, you see, if I denied being in the Commonwealth, then I would rule out the entire footprint of the Commonwealth. Oh, from and, people's, yes, yeah, sort of. A, yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. Well, uh, at, at any rate, um, people have gotten close in the, in the great game of triangulating your location. But it makes me feel, honestly, like we should play a game more frequently called Where in the World is Edward F. Condon, where we send you somewhere you do the podcast from some location you drop a couple of breadcrumbs and um and our subscribers are eligible to triangulate your location at which at which point they will you know come upon that if they can find you they'll come upon in that location you know maybe a pillar t-shirt and a stick in other words we sort of geocache some things as you travel around and and we let people sort of suss them out Does, does that sound fun to you that seems great i i I wouldn't do the. I wouldn't leave the cache of pillar merch in the place, as it were, just because I feel like that's excluding people who can't get to the place. Oh, and also, I, the whole purpose of me coming to places like that is I. And I want to be clear, and I say this with all love to all of our listeners. I don't want you to come here. <laughs> I don't want anyone to come here. I come here to, because there are no other people here. Yeah, but so you say please that. Don't but at do the same that. time, you you say that at the same I'll time. I'll send you the T-shirt. I you, it, you can blackmail me if you send me my correct location. I will send you a pillar T-shirt to stop you coming here. You do say that. Um, first of all, listeners, hear that. If if you send at his correct location, he will send you a pillar T-shirt. That's a promise you just heard right here on the. Well, I was going to say radio, but right here on the podcast. Uh, so bear that in mind. If you send Ed your location, he will send you a T-shirt. And what's very interesting is Ed didn't say that the pillar would send you a T-shirt. In other words, Ed himself will pay for your T-shirt. That's the part that I like the most. Um, so I hope that if you find it, you will take Ed up on that offer. Um, but, uh, oh, you know, I, I just think, I don't know, I just think that we could get a lot of traction kind of sending you around to various places and you can give these sort of breadcrumbs. But the point is you say that you don't want people to come there. but And at the very same time, You've been, you've been sloppy in your tradecraft. Um, almost like you want to be caught. You know, a picture of the spring and um, the name of the newspaper and mentioning that there's a lake. I mean, you know, I, anybody who's got an afternoon could probably get pretty close. No, they, they probably could. I, I I rely to a degree on two different things. The first is the good faith of our listeners, who are mm-hmm. wonderful people, and you know would never be so horrible as to dox me. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not for, saying that they're going for, to, I'm not know, saying that they're going opening to put, the door put, crack into put it out there where publicly. I I'm just saying that they should, if they find it, you know, take the opportunity to come and have an IPA with you on the porch. No, no, you, you shouldn't do that. And, you, and I think you want that. I, I think that no, you want that or you wouldn't wrong. be giving these you're things absolutely away. absolutely wrong. Do think. It's like no. sometimes my son, my little son who's three will like be in his room. He'll be mad about something that I took away from him. And he'll be like kind of crying, but it's like a half cry. And then he listens to see if I'm coming and then he cries. And, and then I come near the door and he's like, no, go away. But he doesn't, he doesn't mean it. And I don't think you do either. I, I do mean it. Let me be very clear. I mean it. <laughs> the only person um, from the sort of internet podcasting world that has ever been here and to whom I've ever disclosed the actual location is a, is a priest. And I, I made that concession 
to to open the door to him and feed him with good steak because he in exchange celebrated a private mass for my wife and I on our anniversary in a previous year. I'm proud of you, Ed. First of all, that was very cool of him, and it was very cool of you to do. I'm proud of you that you didn't... I thought you were going to drop the name of the priest. Again, no, because then that would totally narrow down. Although I will, I will say, the priest who came had to cross diocesan lines. I wouldn't be so foolish as to pick a local. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, good. I'm glad you're still there. Again, I'm not rushing you back to, um, to D.C., which, as you say, is... Uh, how far away again? About five and a half hours, give or take. And is that mostly mostly on the interstate? No, there's cameras on the interstate, man. I take back roads. <laughs> oh, you man. think I need a photograph of my license plate going across, you know, various interstates and state turnpikes and things with all those cameras and stuff? Forget about it. What I'm mostly wondering about right now, I'll tell you the truth, is, um, you know, the other a couple of weeks ago, I was complaining about a friend of ours who tells us that he fast forwards the banter. Yes. I've yes. mostly just been wondering if he's fast-forwarded the banter. If you have, friend, I'll be ticked, because I would say this is quality banter right here. I, I, I'm, I enjoy these. I enjoy our time together, JD, and if other people derive a measure of enjoyment from it, then that makes me happy. If other people want to fast-forward, you know what? That's what the button's for. I, I would also just say that those, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you won't get if you're fast-forwarding. I suppose that those who wanted to find you, if they even had a sense of what potential counties you could be in, they could then look in the, on the websites of the county assessor's offices for those places um, and then do a property record search to see if there are any properties held in the last name of your family. I mean, that would probably do it. No, it wouldn't. But, you know, <laughs> you think my family is sloppy enough to put its name on deeds? You're out of your mind. I, I wasn't born right. this way. I was made. All right. Well, listen, I'd like to talk about this more, believe me. But um, we can't. We're, we're going to talk about one thing today for the remainder of the show. W- would you believe, Ed, that we have already been talking about this for, um, uh, gosh, I don't know. How long have we been talking about it? We have already been talking about this for quite a while. Now I can't even find my record. Oh, we've been talking about this for 11 minutes. So some poor sap who is a pal of ours had to fast forward 11 quality minutes of this. But what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this show is something very big and newsworthy that... Uh, that has occurred, something that we uh, uh, as canonists and as journalists have long been awaiting and um, and has now uh, has now taken place. The, the promulgation of a new book six of the Code of Canon Law, um, which deals with the penal law or the sanction law, the, the law of sanctions in the life of the church. So we're going to talk today. This is going to be, I suppose you might say, a very special episode. This is our Super Bowl, man. This is our Super Bowl. This is a big deal. I, I will tell you, I... Um, yeah, I started Canon Law School in 2005, and I, for the first semester, professors were telling me, like, well, you know, there's going to be a new, that was my podcast, there's going to be a new book six soon, so, you know, you don't, you don't want to mark up that code because you're going to want to return it, which doesn't exactly make sense because I don't think the bookstore would take it back if it was suddenly um, irrelevant. But anyhow, um, you know, the, the talk was in 2005 that there was going to be a new book six imminently. Um, and it is now 2021, and uh, we have it. And, and in a certain way, in the life of the church... Eh, that's not too bad. Well, that's not. That's as pretty. That's as close to imminent as we usually get. Yeah, I mean, for a church that thinks in centuries, I, I look. It took what twenty five years to get the nineteen eighty three code done. So, you know, fourteen years to get a new book six. I'd say we're doing all right. I mean, and bear in mind when 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 the code revision commission that was charged after Vatican Council two with 
drafting the new code of canon law. I mean, one of the sections that they really stuck on was penal law. Like that was mm-hmm. authority issue to begin with. There was a lot of back and forth about how they wanted to, you know, how they wanted to conceptualize the idea of a universal penal law for the church. Um, there were some guiding principles that that were underlaying their work and finding the sort of balance not to say tension between those guiding principles and the practicalities of governing the church as a society was very, was very interesting and very tense. And people have devoted their entire lives to studying that process. And I mean, if you're so inclined, it's a great way to spend your time. I mean, it's, I don't know about you, but I can't think, I can't think of anything more fascinating. Um, so no, I think we did all right. 14 years um, start to finish. I, I'd say it was good. And I mean, I, you know, I, Penal law was the area that I I, I was studied. Say, we're very fortunate that we're very fortunate to have you here, as we always are. But of course, um, you know, it's we if if there were if it were a book in which one of us did not have an expertise, then we might be bringing in an expert. But as it happens, you wrote your dissertation on penal law, so this is precisely your area of canonical expertise from a from a sort of drafting and development standpoint. Uh, this is my jam. I mm-hmm. you know this is what I like. It's what I practice most in. It's what I studied most in. I I. I do love it. It's fun. It's fun for me. I was, you say I did my dissertation in penal law and I, I tried to do, you know, as you always do in a dissertation, it's only about the thing you're writing about right. for sort of the last half. Most of it is, you know, yeah, discussing history. of legal principles and history and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the, the canon, the, the thing that I was really terrified about with this new code of this new book six was I was worried that the canon I wrote my dissertation on would be taken out mm-hmm. and then I would basically have a totally irrelevant degree. Yeah. And that I was worried that I, you know, I said I was worried I was going to end up with a canonical history degree at the end of the revision of book six. And that didn't happen. Canon 1374, still there, pristine condition. I, I heard about a guy who, um, who was working on his, who was working on his dissertation, like <laughs> right, right through, uh, 81, 82 and 82. And he was working on a canon that was in the schema, the schemata for the new code, the 83 code. Um, and, uh, you know, he spent, a dissertation's amount of time working on it, and then when the code was promulgated, his canon didn't make it in. So he had indeed written an entire oh. dissertation on a canon that never never existed as law. Wow. Yeah. That's, that hurts. Yeah, it does. But I, I want to talk about the new book six, but because this is a very special episode, and and, um, and because this is our Super Bowl, and, and we have probably... Um, we, we we might be inclined right now, given um, our own enthusiasm about this, to sort of go straight into the weeds. Uh, I want to sort of back up and just talk a little bit uh, about what canon law is and its history kind of in the life of the church. And I think probably for longtime listeners, some of this may be review, and certainly if you have taken canon law courses or if you're a canonist, all of this will be review. But I think it might be helpful just to talk for a minute or two kind of about what canon law is. And... Um, and that's that's what we call in the biz service journalism. Even though Ed's already rolling his eyes at the no, idea I'm not that rolling gonna... my eyes. I'm furring my brow a little bit, but that's only because <laughs> I really like the whole reason we're having a Super Bowl podcast for Canon Law is to get into the weeds, man. I want to do the nitty gritty play by play. The nitty gritty play by play. But all I'm okay. saying is, if you're gonna have a Super Bowl party. You, let's say we were in your native England, right? If we were gonna have a Super Bowl party in your native England, we might take a few minutes to talk about what football is first. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. So good enough. So, um, so uh, do you want to start? Uh, okay. The, what so, is canon law, Ed? Canon law is the is the ultimate sacred science. Is the most okay. beautiful and sublime sacred science. It is the only discipline of the church 
which we know will exist in heaven. Is that so? I don't know that. It, well, I mean, if you think about it, what are what are the sacred sciences, JD? Theology, philosophy, liturgy, church history, scripture, and canon law, and maybe there's another. Right. Well, so we won't have scripture in heaven because Is that so? we, well, we will all live in the presence of the divine word. Fair. Okay. Uh, we will not have theology in heaven yeah, because faith-seeking understanding because we indeed will have understanding. We won't have philosophy. The meaning of life and existence will be abundantly clear at that point. There will Amen. be no liturgy in heaven because, of course, the isn't sacraments all of are heaven mere a liturgy, foretastes. Though? I mean, I would say, isn't all of heaven well, a liturgy? Okay, but it's not a reality. sacramental liturgy in that sense because <laughs> there are no sacraments in heaven because the mm-hmm. sacrament is the yeah, divine right, foretaste mm-hmm. of heaven and we will Indeed. be there. But we know from the angelic doctor that there is law in heaven. Good and enough. where there is law, there will be lawyers. Good enough. Well, There I'm... will be no theologians in heaven. But there will be lawyers. Well, I'm very... <laughs> okay, so canon law is the, is the sublime science of, uh, which will, uh, of, of heavenly providence. It is that which endures. Mm-hmm, is that which endures, and that's fine. But for those of you who would like something a little bit sort of less poetic... Uh, okay. can... <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, will, I will do the sensible thing. Sorry. I, I will no, no, give no. The, I'm very glad for you to do uh, the thing. I will give the grown-up thing. Uh-huh. Um, the church is not just uh, the mystical body of Christ, the sacrament of salvation for the whole world, all of these things. The church is in itself a society, which is it is a body of people that we are saved. The church Defined, in fact, as a, as as a, a communion of the baptized. That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that our, our communion, our society has order, has structure, and that, you know, the, the presence of law is, if you like, the skeleton that gives the body of Christ shape on earth. And that the church, as um, a society complete unto itself, has what it needs, including law, to order itself and to function properly. And so it reserves to itself and claims as its birthright, this is the language of canon law, um, certain powers and abilities. Uh, amongst which, you know, we're talking about penal law today, is the, is the innate right to act with coercive power on its members for the good of their salvation and for the good of the body as the whole as a whole um and to and to arrange its structures in such a way that there is a coherence and a harmony amongst them so law is if you like canon law is if you like an articulation of different levels of law we have of course um, divine law uh, which can be both uh, if you like manifest in the natural law and also what we call divine positive law which is that which is we know to be the will of God and the law of God by revelation rather than intuition through through nature. Um, and then underneath the divine law, we have what we call merely ecclesiastical law, which is the, the laws and norms which the church promulgates on her own authority, um, which aren't divine law. They're not, you know, God wills and it is unchanging. They are the, there are the articulations of the authority of the church apt for time and place and circumstance to ensure that the church is ordered in such a way as to affect the salvation of souls. Sort of so born to of take, and applied from the, 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 doctrinal, the doctrinal teachings of the church. I mean, sure. merely ecclesiastical law isn't arbitrary. No, um, it is no, instead, by no means. I think you would say, an application of the church's um, anthropology, ecclesiology, sacramental theology. Sure. But, these are, but ecclesiastical laws are those which can change according to the conditions of time and place by the judgment of those with yes, legislative they are, power. Yeah. They are promulgated by the authority of the church, and they can be changed and mm-hmm. repealed by the authority of the church as she deems appropriate. So I think a good encapsulation of this is something I was writing about um, a little bit uh, last night, and I haven't finished that and I need to do that, um, is if you think about the marriage law of the church, it contains all of these, in canon law, contains all of these different levels. So we have the the natural law of, mm-hmm. the, of marriage, which is that it is a, a union between a man and a woman ordered by its very nature to the 
good of the spouses, um, to fidelity, to stability, to unity, to the procreation education of children, um, that this is all, if you like, natural law that we have also by... Ordered by order to the good and the procreation, um, the properties of which are unity and fidelity and indissolubility and those sorts of things. Correct. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> no, no, that's helpful. Um, <laughs> No, here in Canon Law Corner, we, we applaud pedantry. Yeah, it, this I mean, is... it, it, it may seem pedantic, but in fact, it's not because it's a great example of something like, so we know from natural law and even then from revelation that marriage has certain ends, right? I mean, the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. And then from those ends can be derived certain sort of essential properties of marriage. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And... Uh, so that's all, if you like, divine and natural law of marriage, which is absolutely codified in and articulated by canon law. But then also in canon law, we have merely ecclesiastical law in um, canonical form, the way in which marriage is celebrated in the church, the reception of the consent of the parties, the couple, by someone properly delegated by the church, usually a cleric, a priest, or a deacon, mm -hmm. um, and that marriages are celebrated in the church, often in a liturgical context, mm -hmm. and that all of these things take place in a certain way with a certain order for the good of the spouses, mm -hmm. for the good of the community, because marriage is a public act. And so we have these sort of complementary levels of legislation that have different points of origin, either from God, from nature, and from the church's own authority, but, you know, are really articulating the truths and the justice of a certain situation and working together in harmony in that way. So the church has this for all sorts of things. It has it for the sacraments, like marriage. It has it for penal law, which hopefully we'll discuss at great length and intimate detail, um, but it also has it for things like the governance of temporal goods, the use of things, uh, the use of real estate and money and property and things like that, that all of these things, because the church is a complete society, it has law that addresses every aspect of that society. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very good encapsulation. I'm going to read um, John Paul II's encapsulation in Sacra Disciplina Legis, which promulgated the 1983 Code of Canon Law, not because I think it... Um, uh, is because I think it complements yours, and I think it sort of says some of the same things. I, I'm prepared to have it say for you to say that the Saint Pope, who promulgated <laughs> the code, is. Well, said I don't it want better. you to feel That's like fine. I just didn't. I don't want you to feel like I didn't think you did a good job. You did a fine job, but let's hear it from John Paul II now. Um, as a matter of fact. The Code of Canon Law, and indeed we can say all canon law, but here I quote John Paul II, as a matter of fact, the Code of Canon Law, or canon law itself, is extremely necessary for the Church. Since the Church is organized as a social and visible structure, it must also have norms, in order that its hierarchical and organic structures be visible, in order that the exercise of the functions divinely entrusted to it, especially that of sacred power and of the administration of the sacraments, may be adequately organized, in order that the mutual relations of the faithful may be regulated according to justice based upon charity, with the rights of individuals guaranteed and well-defined, in order, finally, that common initiatives undertaken to live a Christian life ever more perfectly may be sustained, strengthened, and fostered. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. Can I think it's very well said. To sustain, strengthen, and foster our efforts to live a Christian life ever more perfectly. Um, canon law helps us to organize... Uh, and exercise the functions of um, of sacred uh, 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 of sacred ministry of sacramental administration. Um, canon law helps us to have relationships of justice between one another because we are exactly as you said it a social and a visible structure. There is no um, if the church is the sacrament of salvation, um, there is no uh, salvation all by yourself. Salvation 
um, comes in the context of a communion, which has Christ as its, uh, as its head, and the Pope is the vicar of Christ, but um, salvation comes in the context of a, a communion, a real live social communion. No, nulla salus sine ecclesia, J.D. Right, exactly. Even if, now I don't want to be, I don't want to fall into the heresy of, uh, of of Fenianism and say that it's not possible for a person to have a sort of mystical connection to the church even without a sort of juridic and demonstrable connection to the church in this world. But nevertheless, the church, um, a communion, a visible social structure, is the means by which salvation is meted out through the world, into the world. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, so that's what canon law is or what it's for. And let's just talk a little bit about, okay, so we're talking about the new book six in the code of canon law and, uh, and, and we should be, and we're going to get into the weeds there, but, um, the code of canon law was promulgated in 1983 and the new book six was promulgated in 2021. Let's just do in three minutes or less how we got to this point, starting with, let's say the council of Jerusalem, um, from the scriptural period of the church, from the very earliest moments of the church, we see those who are entrusted by Christ, um, entrusted, commissioned, and um, and uh, and established by Christ as apostles, entrusted with the governance and leadership and prophetic leadership of the church, um, coming together to make decisions about how we ought to live as Christians. So, of course, they're meeting out doctrine, the deposit of faith, but they're also meeting out sort of the discipline of the church. If um, a Jewish, per- if a if a pagan, um, a non-Jew converts, um, does he have to keep kosher? Does he have to be circumcised? Uh, what what day should we keep as a Sabbath? What how how do we make sort of judgments about the relationship between Torah and uh, and gospel? Uh, how do we make judgments about the relationship between civil citizenship and gospel? Um, from the very beginning, how do we make rela- judgments about the relationship? Gosh, you see this in the Book of Acts. How do we make judgments about the relationship between our private property and our obligation to live um, in common as Christians and to have some genuine communitarian sense of being a com- uh, in communion with one another? Um, from the very beginning of the church's life, these questions have arisen, and there are doctrinal answers um, that guide sort of the, the judgment about those things, but um, but some things have to sort of be meted out, um, uh, an application of the, doc- the church's doctrine in the particular circumstances of any g- given church. And so from the beginning of the church, you have the apostles coming together as they did at Jerusalem to make sort of governance decisions, and then you have the bishops of various local churches, most of whom were um, ordained or consecrated by St. Paul, also making judgments about um, sort of discipline in various local places. And then you even see sort of hierarchical intervention in which from the patristic period, you can see, for example, the Bishop of Rome um, sort of intervening with other churches to suggest that what they're doing ought to be amended or corrected or reformed in one way or another. So you begin to see sort of the it, what, what exists in the deposit of faith, the hierarchical structure of the church, um, take shape and exercise not only sort of the munis sanctificandi, the, the, the sacraments, not only the munis decendi, the teaching and proclamation of the gospel, but the munis regendi. You begin to see the apostles act as um, leaders um, in, with, with, uh, with authority to make decisions about their community. And that is the beginning of canon law, these sort of disciplinary decisions that are made. So what we begin to see subsequent to that is that bishops in various places begin to get together with one another to make decisions, again, not only to meet out doctrinal disputes. And if you think we got doctrinal disputes now, just read the history of the early church, um, because they had more and, uh, you know, far more intense. Um, but not only to meet out doctrinal disputes, but also to meet out disciplinary disputes. How ought we to live? 
and um, and they derive their answers about how we ought to live based upon how it is that we pray and what it is that we believe. Um, but th- there were practical questions about how we ought to live that were not sort of the same in every place because of different circumstances of time and place in which doctrine could um, be applied or be taken into account in different ways in different places. So you begin to see disciplinary norms, sort of rules about how we ought to live, um, arise in different parts of the church with the local councils and bishops coming together to make um, judgments and even begin to sort of promulgate canons. Now, you get to Nicaea. Everybody knows. Well, I don't know. I think most people know that Nicaea changes a lot in the church. Ed, do you think that's fair to say? I, I think... Yeah, I think if anyone knows, if anyone could name a council, they'd, they'd be looking for Nicaea. <laughs> so those early centuries of the church, you have local councils, you have the beginning of sort of hierarchical intervention, you have the promulgation of disciplinary norms, you have the meeting out of these things, and then Nicaea, where the church suddenly has a very different relationship um, to empire, um, to, to the civil state, uh, a very different sort of set of circumstances for itself, um, a freedom um, a freedom in the one hand to act, and on the other hand, sort of an expectation um, from the civil state that it will meet out some uh, theological disputes and some ambiguities even about how one ought to live as a Christian. And so, you know, we think about Nicaea as being principally a theological thing, and it was principally a theological thing. Nicaea is a, you know, a, a council convoked largely to, to resolve certain serious theological issues. But at the end of Nicaea, you also see the council fathers promulgate norms, disciplinary norms about liturgy, about sacraments, about hierarchy, about uh, temporal goods, about finances. You begin to see this happen, and then in the subsequent councils, you begin to see this happen more and more often. And over the course of um, history, as especially subsequent to Nicaea, um, the church begins to unpack ever more concretely not only its conciliar nature, but also its hierarchical nature, and we begin to better and better understand the role and identity of the Bishop of Rome, the Roman Pontiff as the Vicar of Christ. And as we, the church begins to better understand what is contained in the deposit of faith with regard to the Vicar of Christ, the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Rome himself begins to sort of legislate more um, for the universal church to exercise his, his universal governance, actually to exercise his universal authority. Long before it's like declared and defined, we, we have it living, right? We, we see the deposit of faith un, unpacked in that way. Um, and so you have bishops in their local churches making rules, you have councils making rules, and then you have the the, um, uh, the vicar of Christ, the pope, making rules. And, and what begins to happen is you begin to have um, laws in a lot of cupboards and a lot of drawers. And, um, and that's a good thing in that you have sort of a forest thick with laws, but it's, it can be a bit of a tricky thing because it begins to be hard to sort of meet out what the law is where. In, in the time before online searchable databases, it can be hard to make yourself aware of and to consult with alacrity um, all of the different relevant legislation when treating with a particular subject, especially if, for example, you are a bishop in... Uh, you know, thinking to, for example, the 19th century, if you're a bishop in a Latin American diocese and you are coming up against, you know, the better establishment of the church in your territory and country, and you have all sorts of questions about clerical discipline, lay involvement and things like that, you might not be in a position to consult all the norms and canons and decrees and papal encyclicals and motus proprio and various other things that have taken place across the centuries. Or the sets of Roman laws, which I forgot to mention, the sets of Roman laws that have been sort of incorporated into the church's life. Like from the very beginning, as the church began to have disputes and wanted to resolve those disputes, she sort of drew up into herself a lot of principles of Roman law that existed as well. And it is for this reason that the church today has what is recognized universally to be the oldest continually functioning legal system in the world. It is indeed. But let's talk about the 12th century. 
Because you have laws in all of these cupboards, and then somebody comes along. Ed, do you know who I'm thinking about? Uh, I'm going to go with Gratian. Gratian comes along. And what does Gratian do, Ed? Gratian studies, J.D. Gratian recovers the great Justinian codification of Roman law, which was itself, a, if you like, well, so the, now we're getting into Roman legal history. We are nowhere near book six, and we're more <laughs> no, than halfway through not, this. But that's okay. I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't care. <laughs> People can deal with it. Um, okay. So you had Roman law, which was founded on the original, you know, uh, laws of the city-state of Rome. You had the evolution of the Roman law of the Republic and the great writings of the Roman jurists like Ulpian and, and things like that. And it was it was fabulous law. But then comes the Emperor Justinian, who uh, he has an idea. He has an idea that he is going to, if you like, sort of reinvent Rome. Um, and he is going to reestablish the empire in its, all its former glory, and he is going to make things new again. And one of the things he wants to do is a great legislator emperor is he wants to tidy up the centuries of roman legal tradition and thought and so what he does is basically he says all of these libraries full of law and jurisprudence and legal scholarship we're just gonna burn all of that and the bits that i like and the bits that my sort of if you like expert legal advisors tell me are the most important the most succinct everything else we're going to keep those and get rid of everything else and so justinian publishes his own codex of roman law a code of law. Well, and it was a corpus, with, right? I mean, there's a, a critical corpus. A corpus. He takes Sorry, law a, from other places and he yes. says, these are the laws now. Mm -hmm. These yeah. are the laws. And along with it comes, um, if you like, a, a digest, mm -hmm. a, a commentary as well of, you know, the, the best of the great Roman legal philosophers, which accompanies this. And this basically falls like a dead letter historically yeah. speaking, because mm -hmm. Justinian's work to sort of rebuild the empire and uh, and make it new again sort of caught on for a brief while and then collapsed like an over like an underdone souffle. By the uh, way, can I just say something that I really like about you? Sure. You began the, this paragraph by complaining that we weren't at book six yet and then took us from the 12th century where I was back to the 6th century where you are now. I know. but I like that a lot. It's, you know, if we've opened the can, we're going to have to eat the whole thing now. <laughs> anyway, so so Justinian's um, the codification... The Super Bowl, by the way, is a pretty long game. So if we talk for a while... Exactly. Talk, yeah. So Justinian's corpus of Roman law basically lies buried. It, it's a forgotten text. It's a dead law that never really became the Usvigens. It never really spread throughout, particularly the, the Western half of the empire. It, it got some traction in the Eastern Empire under Constantinople and everything, but it never really made it to Rome and to the Western empire but what gratian does is gratian if you like rediscovers it and as everyone knows the if you want to live in academic um history as a great mind what you have to do is just find something someone else wrote several centuries earlier that no one's bothered Dusted to read in a while Friday, exactly and so this is what <laughs> i'm gratian not did. going to say that the angelic doctor distinguishes himself in large part by dusting off a fellow named aristotle but it's not entirely untrue either i don't think that's an unfair characterization at all and so much as the angelic doctor um but St. Thomas Aquinas, if you think. Yeah. Uh, much as he built his his theology and his systematic work on the writings and thought of Aristotle, so Gratian um, rediscovers the Justinian works of law and resurrects this in the city of Bologna, where was his school and faculty of canon law, and, and represents a new systematic approach to, to law in the church. Yes, he, he compiles what he calls the Corpus Juris Canonici, the, 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 the body of canon laws. And then he puts together 
a textbook, uh, the Concordance of Discordant Canons, which is, uh, again, a compilation of canons and then a bunch of case studies. Gratian puts together a bunch of case studies. This happens in the church. What should you do? This happens in the church. What can be done? And the, 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 essentially, a lot of what we have of Gratian is his teaching notes. Yes. And uh, and the value of that for me, I mean, there are a number of values of that, but 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 one of the more interesting values of that is that you get to look back at sort of like what were the issues uh, plaguing the church in the 12th century, and one part of that that I like is just that they're the same damn issues that canonists are dealing with in in, in chanceries like right this minute. So that's very interesting. But Gratian puts together, uh, Gratian begins sort of putting together the Creedum collection and the and and these kinds of things and um, and builds sort of the foundation, if you will for what we might think of as modern canon law, sort of um, not yet codified, but, um, but, but drawn together. And, and right after he sort of gets done doing that, um, another fellow pops onto the scene, Ed, um, uh, Raymond of Penafort, and a, a, a Dominican. And I, I wonder if you can say much. Uh, Gratian, I think, probably was, uh, uh, Gratian was a monk, but I don't actually know what kind of monk he was. I don't know if you do either, but... Um, but Raymond was a Dominican, and he pops up. And, and, and what's Raymond's contribution here? Uh, you know what? You take this one, because otherwise I'm going to go off for 10 minutes. And okay. I really do want to get close to book six at some point, please. Raymond compiles the Decretals of Gregory the Ninth, which are essentially um, an organization uh, an organization of canon law organized or at the behest of Gregory the Ninth, but by Raymond of Penafort, a new canonical collection. So Gratian was sort of taking everything by virtue of scholarship. This is actually a fascinating relationship between university and, and episcopacy. But Gratian sort of collects everything by virtue of scholarship and sort of says like, well, this seems to be what the law of the church is. And then Gregory the Ninth says, well, let's organize it a little bit better and have my, put my name on it and make sure that it's what I, you know, in an exercise of sort of authority would like for the church's uh, collection of canon law to be. So he commissions Raymond and Penifor to work with him together to to compile the... the um, the uh, Decretals of Gregory the Ninth, which is essentially, again, a canonical collection. And this is what we have. Um, this is what we have as canon law added to over the centuries. So this was in, so so those guys are like, what, 13th century? Yeah. Yeah. So those guys are 13th century. And, uh, and so they begin to kind of compile things. And so this compilation is a real revolution. We're bringing things together in a certain way with the authority of the Pope. And so we can know what canon law is, but more laws are made and they're put on top. And again, you sort of begin to get a big stack of laws. And at the, at the very same time that you begin to get a sort of big stack of laws, and that's not altogether uncommon in Europe, but the nation state is developing, and um, some places which follow a more common law tradition are developing an understanding of sort of jurisprudence, um, uh, you know, um, the decisions of courts to sort of interpret the law authentically. But at the well, same okay, time— okay, so now here I'm going to take us down a tangent, but I can't stop myself. So one of the things that happens, as you said, the nation state begins developing, and you have the common law tradition coming in in the Anglosphere, and that's spreading throughout different parts of the world, is— for most of the church's history, and certainly for most of European history, there was what was a, a Roman law concept of sort of the the use gentium, the law mm -hmm. of nations. That right. there was a common law, a, a sort of if you like, understanding of almost international law. And, 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 was, and it, the international law being almost in a certain way understood to be natural law too. Like, was, but that's what I was going to say. From natural not, principles, like derived from natural principles. Everybody knows that this is yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. It was, but that's yeah. exactly right. And that's why I was at almost a kind of international law because international law today is based on treaties and is, to my mind fundamentally irreconcilable with the concept of the nation state and international is bullshit and we should abolish the UN. But that's a separate conversation. <laughs> um, but the but the sort of the use gentium concept of much of European history basically meant that um, 
countries, nations, I mean, in this case, we're talking about kingdoms and principalities primarily, are issuing what we in the church would understand to be particular law. That is, it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of or seek to supplant the wider understanding of the basic right. natural law principles of justice and equity, right. um, but it simply articulates them for, in a more particular way for their, for their own circumstances. And when we see the concept of the Eus Gentium, the sort of common legal history of Europe, the common legal consensus of what is law and justice in Europe and across the world begin to break down, that's when um, having sort of this, you know, triple stacked centuries of history becomes a little more problematic because, uh, you know, that that if you like the, the difficulty in wading through and understanding all of that uh, is mitigated somewhat if there is a common universal understanding of legal principles. And when that is absent, then suddenly you need to be able to cite individual things a lot more and it, the whole thing becomes a lot more burdensome. Yeah. Okay. We're going to skip the Liber Sextus and... <laughs> And we can even skip the Liber Septimus. And uh, we're going to move to Vatican Council I, uh, at which um, the Fathers of Vatican Council I, which is, again, principally a theological thing. And uh, I don't think that Vatican Council I—Trent, for example, ecumenical councils had this history of promulgating norms at the end, right? So, I mean, you know, you have the decretals of, of Gregory the Ninth, and they're really promulgated by Gregory the Ninth. This is the law, this collection of laws. But Trent makes new laws, and particular law, and popes are making new laws, and da 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 but I don't think that Vatican I makes um, disciplinary norms at the end. Instead, the fathers of Vatican I say, uh, we should have a code because the civil law tradition of sort of promulgated laws developing in, in, in various places. And so the fathers of Vatican I say, we should have a code. And so um, it's Pius X who says, okay, well, if we're going to have a code, we're going to have to sort through everything that we have. And after we sort through everything we have, we're going to have to then like sort of Put it, figure out which what we want to keep and what we don't want to keep and, and all that. So we're going to put together a commission. And so he puts together a code commission in, I, I want to say 19, it's like 1902, 3, and, uh, and he puts in charge uh, a, a man who is uh, hugely important in the life of canon law, uh, Cardinal Pietro Gasperi, as the, uh, as the commissioner of the Commission for the Codification of Canon Law. And they get to work, and I, again, I want to say it's like 1903, 1902 that they get to work. They get to work, basically looking at everything, consulting, figuring out what the what the what the whole thing of the law is, and then seeing if there's a way to systematize and organize sort of the principles of law, while at the same time recognizing the theological developments, the theological sort of developments declared in the First Vatican Council, um, the the principles thereof, the principles of civil law. And they spend uh, quite some time, and I, I want to say it's like around, it's shortly after the 1910s, like 12, 11, 12, 13, that they start sending out drafts of a code, a, a comprehensive set of universal laws for the for the whole of the Latin Catholic Church. Um, and they send it out to the bishops around the world, and they get feedback, and probably religious superiors too, probably scholars, they get feedback, and they incorporate that feedback. And in 1917, they bring their code to Pope Benedict XV, and they say, we're done. And Gaspari has done, I mean, a, a work. I mean, that is a work that Gaspari has done. He deserves to go down in history as perhaps the most important jurist. I would say certainly after the year one thousand. And I mean, I'm I would say Gratian, Raymond, that. Gaspari. I no, I together. I'm not even ordering them in a particular order. I'm just saying. Okay. Yeah, I I think. It, it, at best, it's a toss-up. I think the edge may even go to Gaspari because 
I mean, he, you know, Gratian was doing what he did from a perspective of academia and legal understanding, and it had, you know, fantastic utility and everything. Gasparri was playing with live ammo. He was being charged with actually coming up with a universal law for the church. So the pressure was... And he basically was, I mean, he basically was, um, like... You know, he, you if you went into Gaspari's apartment, you'd think he was a hoarder, but those were just the books he was working with. I mean, the guy was just secluded with tax. And, of course, he had a commission. The commission was helping, but Gaspari drove the whole thing. And, 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 and this was a new thing to go from this is the history of laws that's developed to bam, these are the laws for the church, period. It's a huge undertaking. And so that's promulgated in 1917. And then um, by... The 19- I have no idea, by the way. I don't, I, I don't know enough about Gaspari to know why he's not a saint or doesn't have a cause, but we'll talk about that Antinomianism. That's why, J.D., antinomianism. <laughs> no, it's not antinomianism. <laughs> antinomianism. It's the only reason. Um, anyway, uh, so they, we have this code. It's a big, beautiful code, and uh, that's promulgated in 1917. And then by the 1950s, it's completely out of date and unworkable. Mm-hmm. Because this is the great drawback and of having a codified legal system is you either have to be tinkering with it constantly over mm-hmm. and over and over again mm-hmm. to adapt to changing circumstances, or if you leave it sort of static and say, no, this is the law and you know we'll change it all when we need to change it all. Um, so by the time that when John the 23rd announced he was convoking the Second Vatican Council, he actually at the same time said, and I am convoking. We're um, going to have a code we're going to have a new code of canon law because even by then Mm -hmm. it was already the 1917 code, which is again, a beautiful work. A a magnum opus of of legal scholar. I mean, of systematic legal thought. It is fantastic. But anyway, it is, it is no longer suitable for the post-war world Mm -hmm. um, by the 1950s. And, while, and also, uh, I mean, if you think about the extraordinary advents in technology over that period of time. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, the, and so the, now we're creeping closer to why we needed a new book six. Um, so it is announced that there will also be a new code of canon law, as well as the Second Vatican Council. And the decision is made uh, sort of at the starting gun of Vatican II to say, well, we are going to delay the work on starting a new code of canon law until after the conclusion of the council, because we want the council's thought and teaching and mind to basically guide the revision of the code of canon law. And so that when you have the ending of the Second Vatican Council, you then have the beginning of this multi-year process to redraft uh, the the 1983 code. Uh, we didn't have a Gaspari, unfortunately, to, to redraft the 83 code. We had sort of, you know, these these guiding principles that were, were given to the Code Revision Commission to, to have steer their work, and some of them are very good principles. You know, things like concepts like subsidiarity and the rediscovery of the role of the diocesan bishop, not just the as role the, of the diocesan bishop is a hugely important one, right? Because the Second Vatican Council is in many ways the council of the diocesan bishop. Right? Exactly. And and this is the fundamental difference between the 1917 and 1983 codes is that the 1917 code basically assumed, well, the Pope is the legislator universal and there is the universal law and there is no need for anything else. And diocesan bishops are sacramentally what they are, but in in a practical and certainly from a gubernatorial sense, they are branch managers. Per- perceived to be before the Second Vatican Council. And the yeah. Second Vatican Council kind of in, you know, I think what Ratzinger would say a return to the vision of the early church says, no, Absolutely. no, no. The, 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 the diocesan bishop is the is the shepherd of the of the, his particular church which is not yeah sort of a branch office of Rome no it is a it is its own church it is right. a church and so he and, ought to be a legislator of that church and we should give him frameworks for that but he ought to do the things which within the frameworks of both doctrine and discipline um, 
make sense in the context of his local church. Sure. And so at the very beginning of the of the process to create what became the 1983 code, there was this idea of, well, the church is only going to promulgate a lex fundamentalis, <laughs> a sort of, you know, a, a founding, almost like constitutional law for the universal church. And all of the bishops will have to pass their own legislation that sort of articulates these these bedrock legal principles of the church, and that idea fell apart pretty quickly. I'd like to pause it, for one moment before sure. we go past the Lex Fundamentalis and ask everyone to pray for the repose of the soul of our beloved teacher, Monsignor Tom Green, a champion to the end of the Lex Fundamentalis, a true he scholar really thereof, and a great lover thereof, and perhaps the world's last remaining expert of the Lex Fundamentalis was our late professor, Monsignor Tom Green, who died in uh, within the last Two few years, years and yeah, God rest him. Okay. Mm. Um, so, uh, what, but nevertheless, the principle of subsidiarity in deference to the, dio- the role of the diocesan bishop as proper legislator for his own diocese was definitely still a central guiding principle in the drafting of the 1983 code. So, there are other principles before we right, go to the. So yes, book, there were many there are, guiding there, principles uh, that that helped steer the the revision of the code of canon law, but. The one that I want to focus on is this principle of subsidiarity and the rediscovery of the role of diocesan bishop as legislator in his diocese. And the reason is this. When turning to penal law, the 1917 code had, as you would expect of a big, beautiful code that perceived every available eventuality, had an enormous list of individual canonical crimes or delicts, as we call them in the game. And it also had, you know, an exhaustive discourse of penal procedure and how trials proceed and everything. And I cannot stress to you enough how beautiful this is to read as, as, uh, as a I lawyer. Like, yeah, absolutely. This mm-hmm. is, I mean, this is just so I feel so bad, good. actually, for, like, American civil lawyers, because common law, the legal tradition in which they practice, does not have the sort of beautiful symmetry and poetry of... No, of it does not. Well it is, it is a, it, it's a, it's a, it's the difference between a... a a meadow of wildflowers with a lot of weeds and stuff in it, but it's pretty to look at from a distance and a well-cultivated garden. I mean, punto. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, the point being that when we were talking about penal law, there was a stated intention to remove most of the individual delicts, to scale back the, 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 you know, the sort of exhaustive list of individual crimes that were contained in the universal code for the universal church. And to strip all this back, not with the sense of sort of giving into a sort of Wild West antinomianism and sort of, you know, well, we don't think these things are crimes anymore. On the contrary, it was very self-consciously done. And you can read the cardinals and bishops who are part of the Code Revision Commission. You can read in the notes and the minutes of their sessions and everything else that this was done very self-consciously saying it is for the diocesan bishops to make this legislation their own. It is for the diocesan bishop to pass laws penal laws, coercive laws mm-hmm. for the governance of his faithful and his clergy, that this is how penal law in the church should operate, is it should operate in proximity to the people that it governs, and that the church as a universal church has a very, very diverse set of realities between different dioceses. That a di- mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the Archdiocese of Kinshasa is not the Archdiocese of Baltimore, right. and that the same penal law would not necessarily be apt or appropriate for both. And so it was left to the diocesan bishops to come up with their own penal codes for their diocese, to promulgate them as law. And what did they do? They didn't do it. Nothing. They did nothing. And as a result, we had, and that we've seen this, um, you know, in the in the horrific um, sexual abuse scandals that we've had in recent decades mm-hmm. in the church, 
what happened was you had a very stripped back universal penal system, which, um, which the diocese bishops were supposed to step in and make their mm-hmm. own and fill in the gaps, and they didn't do it. And as a result, the, the whole system just fell into abeyance, basically. Bishop said, mm-hmm. well, there isn't all this penal law anymore, so I guess there isn't penal law anymore. So, And at the you, very same time, there was a sort of social movement against, you know, there was it was just the, the time of the, the hippies, you know, J.D. Yeah, it right, was exactly. hippies. Well, it was hippies who were then like, suddenly, it was, so it was the early 80s, right? So what happens is that hippies suddenly got got the control and they didn't want to be the yeah. man you know they sort of were the man but it wasn't fun to be the man and they didn't want to be the man and someone gave them an out namely an ad every the bishop well, of, not every bishop i shouldn't simplify no, that no, lots no, of bishops bishop. lots of bishops didn't want to be dad they right. wanted to be the cool uncle and the advent uh the advent of sort of the preeminence of psychology as a sort of psychology is important, and I, you know, I think I would think that psychology is more important than you would. But the advent of psychology as a no, sort no, no. of it was prevailing a particular social application. mythos, yes. uh, you know, the, the, became predominant in lots and lots of fields and lots and lots of areas, and, and also in the church. And so, what happened is that you had a Soviet approach. I mean, this was the approach of the Soviet Union, which was to pathologize criminal right. behavior. Many, and many to say things we that have, were thought know, of as criminal activity or moral failures were suddenly sort of thought of principally as psychological failures or just mere, you know, mere evidence of, um, of a psychological malady for which a person would not be therefore culpable of the, of the results thereof. And so between a stripped down sort of set of penal laws and that sort of rise of the prominence of psychology, and I think, Ed, to be fair, we're giving our own historical interpretation on some of that, but, but I, th- but I think it's correct founded. <laughs> I just want to be clear. I mean, there, are people who, there may well be people who would disagree with the way that we're assessing this very recent history, although I'm not aware of who they are. But, but between those two things, or between those three things, the antinomianism of sort of the generational antinomianism of the moment, um, the stripped down nature of the code itself, and then the sort of rise of psychology as um, as a sort, yeah, as a sort of pathologizing of criminal behavior and moral failures in many, many areas, um, for a period of time, by and large, penal law just sort of stopped being practiced in the church in the West. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yes, and this yeah. was particularly prevalent. Just to give people a, a sort of frame of reference, this was at its worst in the 1970s. That this period of time after the Second Vatican Council, when everyone knew the code of canon law was being ripped up, the 1970 code was still technically in force, but everyone just said, oh, well, there basically isn't canon law right now because we don't have the new code yet, so we can just ignore the old one and there is no law. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you were in the 70s already. You yeah. were still in the 70s. Okay, yeah, but that that after the promulgation of the 83 code is when I would say that still perdured a sort of disinclination to exercise oh, for the absolutely. most part. Penal law. So much so that when I started practicing canon law in the early 2000s, and um, bishops, not only the bishops who I worked with, but bishops in other dioceses, because I, I, in the time when I was working for dioceses, I was doing a lot of consulting for other dioceses because the bishop would say like, hey, this guy seems to know about things and he'll help you out. But, you know, I would suggest to bishops, well, you know, father has done so. The bishop would say, what should I do about father? He's done so and so. And I would suggest like, well, it seems to me that you would open a preliminary investigation. These are the possible delicts and we would do this, this and this. We'll probably have an administrative penal process. And it was as if I, as if I were speaking Greek, not too many bishops know Greek. It was as if I were speaking Greek, something with which there was a vague familiarity, but an un, you know an uncertainty about how to use or you make use of. were basically reinventing the wheel in front of them. Well, or, or seeming to them. I mean, well, I didn't even know. You know, I didn't quite grasp the degree to which penal law had, had fallen into disuse. But I think many canonists sort of of my vintage would say the same thing, that there was a period of time that I think we began to come out of post-2002. Um, uh, but, you know, I, are still in some ways coming out of, but there was a period of time in which, um, the church's use of penal law as a coercive mechanism for, 
um, conversion. And that's genuinely how I think about penal laws. It, it, it exists for justice for all of us to repair scandal, to reform penalty, but it's principally a coercive mechanism for, coer- for, for uh, to orient a person towards conversion. Now, you can't coerce a conversion into someone, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, punishment, and if you're a parent, you know this, punishment is designed to redirect a wayward person towards the good. And, and this is what um, Pope Francis says as well. This is what Pope Francis says. We're about to get there. Um, that fell into disuse. And so you had relatively anemic, you had relatively sort of anemic law and disuse, and then, and then bam, 2002. And it was at the time of sort of the spotlight scandals that it became manifestly clear how much sort of penal law wasn't being observed. And the church began to do things about it. The promulgation of Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, which gave new sort of new processes for ensuring that um, uh, uh, gravi- gravior delictus, very serious allegations among them, the sexual abuse of minors were handled in Rome because there was the expectation that Rome would do it better. You know, were promulgated. Not just no, um, it wasn't. Hang on, let's let's call a spade a spade here. It wasn't that the expectation was Rome would do it better. It was Rome said clearly the bishops of the world, right. especially in the West, cannot be trusted Having, to try no, these right, crimes. Have, so yeah, we are not, reserving we are them all to, to Rome. Yep, we're we're going taking to your authority Rome, away. Because and we're going to tell you exactly what you must do if you have knowledge of these kinds of delicts and how you must send them to Rome. And so some uh, some sort of stopgap processes were put into place. Um, when was uh, when was SST promulgated? Do you know? 2004? Yeah, exactly. So some stopgap policies were put into place when the sort of the gravity and the severity of the problem began to come into scope. And uh, uh, but but then you again began to have law in different cupboards because you had SST and then you had the amendments to SST and more recently you have Vosestis and the special faculties and Comunio Madre Moravole. That's right. You begin to have again the problem that we have seen before, which is that you have all this law sort of piled on top of itself, but not all in the same place. And then you don't have an, you simply don't have enough because the 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 the, the, pot, the hope that bishops would promulgate their own penal law, which, by the way, is still a hope, which Ed and I have been talking about for years. You guys, if you've been listening to us for a while, have heard us say, oh, bishops should promulgate a sort of escalating scale of um, of, of canonical crimes and an escalating set of scale of, of punishments. To pro- you, you've heard us say that. Um, well, the church thinks so too, but the church has now outlined bishops must begin to develop an escalating set of penalties and must apply them in an escalating sense, set of criminal you know, moral failures. And so what's happened this week is the Pope saying very, very strongly and directly in the apostolic constitution that promulgates the new book six, we have fallen away from the use of penal law and it has contributed very troublingly to problems in the church. I mean, he says this very, very directly and very, very clearly. Um, And we're going to get back to it. Okay. So we have this new big, beautiful book six, JD. Can we talk about it now? Here we are. So we have a new book six. Um, issued on the on the first of June, but in what we now call the vacatio legis period, the vacation of the law, um, is, issued the first of June, but not effective until the eighth of December. So we have a couple of months essentially to study it and get ready. And I actually think the Holy See is going to need to sort of fill in some lacuna mm-hmm. or make some adjustments between now and then about little thing little things that are not quite quite right, according to Flynn. Um, yes. So let's it. let's do this. Um, in, in the three buckets that we tried to do it in writing when we were covering it on the day. Okay. So, J.D., what's good? What's good? Well, first of all, the Pope's affirmation that penal law is important is really, really, really good. And, and, and you know, John Paul II said things like we should be using penal law, and Benedict XVI said things like we should be using penal law. Um, but here we have the Pope saying, like, we need to be using penal law because that is how we ensure the integrity and uh, of the life of holiness of the life of the Church. I mean... Bam. In the apostolic constitution, in the norms themselves, 
this is coming out and that's a very good thing. So, so in and of itself, sort of the affirmation is very, very good. Um, the sort of normativity by which bishops are expected to apply the law is very, very good. When a bishop has an, or has a knowledge of a deal, he, he, well, actually that's not a canon that change because that's in book seven, but, um, a bishop is to, a bishop must, a bishop ought to, um, rather than should, can, according to his own judgment, there is an expectation that bishops will apply penal law. That's very, very good. Let's talk about another thing that's good and that's big and that's necessary to, to be understood and to be said up front. Um, we have some concerns that we will talk about about some of the sort of very detailed aspects of the church's incorporation of um, Vosestis Lex Mundi and other sort of lessons that have been learned over the past few years. We have some concerns about some aspects of this that we think are going to need to be ironed out and meted out and clarified. However, in general, a recognition of the possibility of th a, a much stronger recognition of the possibility of things like abusing one's office coercively um, is an important development uh, 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 um, in the church's law. A recognition, even while I think the technical details need to be ironed out, a recognition of um, the way in which um, power can be used coercively uh, is, I think, a very good thing. And I think you're probably uh, coming, as you have it, uh, from mostly a perspective of being a defense attorney. I think your criticisms of some of the, the, the sort of uh, weeds of that will be probably stronger than mine are. I think it can be meted out, but I think in principle, the affirmation of those things are hugely important. Um, there are indeed... Uh, other good things that are um, the the affirmation, I think, of due process of uh, of the rights of, of the right of priests, a, a, a fervorino, a sort of exhortatory canon, but an important one because of the because of the tone it sets is to say um, innocence is presumed until the contrary is proven. Now you think, of course, that's a legal system, but you can think of any number of examples in the life of the church in which um, pr priests in this country, especially, have said in recent years, no operationally, um, guilt is presumed until the contrary is proven. And if it can't be proven, then we sort of expect to be put on the shelf indefinitely. Now, the church needs to have a robust a robust system of ensuring that priests guilty of grave crimes are not in ministry, et cetera, et cetera. But it also needs to have a robust system of the protection of rights. And what's happened, I think, because of the scandals of the last two decades is that um, the vigor of prosecution has not, uh, has outpaced and exceeded uh, at least on paper, um, the or the vigor of the appearance of prosecution, I would actually say, sort of the vigor of the appearance of having done the right thing has exceeded vigor for the defense of rights, among them sort of the due process rights of, of the presumption of innocence. So I think that that's a oh, it's pretty huge. good thing. And it, it exists in a number of places. The prescription yeah. thing, the uh, yeah. I think the clerics thing, I mean, I know it sounds like such a little thing, but no, I'll but tell it's you, a big deal. I have worked with so many priests who they're accused of something, and it and it's immediately the, the decree initiating the preliminary investigation. If there's a decree, it says you can't wear clerics until this is all worked out. And when the priest goes before the review board and he can't wear clerics, when the priest, you know, goes to talk to his brother priest and he can't wear clerics, he looks like he's done something so wrong that he can't be identified as a he priest. Looks like he's already if, been he looks like he's already been laicized. He looks like he's already been laicized, and you know, he's in a golf shirt looking like it. And and if in, and priests generally have bad clothes, and so he's in you know bad clothes. And so if he is in, um, you know, if if he is in that situation in a certain sort of very basic way, he's starting out behind the eight ball. Well, the new code, the new book six affirms. That uh, a prohibition against wearing clerics is a is wearing is a penalty, and therefore it can't be sort of imposed administratively without a process. It's a it's it's a psychological thing, but it's not a small one. 
It's not a small one in any other. Yeah. It, it, if you if you are arrested for a crime in the United States and you are you know being and you don't have bail or whatever and you're being kept in jail pending your trial and everything, when you appear for your arraignment hearing or anything else, your lawyer brings you a suit and you get changed. You're not obliged to turn ho- ho- up in hopefully. court in front of a jury in an o- orange boiler suit because it pre- creates a presumption of guilt on your part in front of the jury. I mean, this is this is basic. To, I mean, you call the the sort of the, the the statement of a legal presumption of innocence until proven guilty exhortatory. I don't think it's exhortatory at all. This is if if I can think of many cases that I've handled as a defense attorney in the last ten years um, that I would be delighted to have had this canon to cite. And, mm-hmm. and to oh yeah, this is a big one. This is a big one. I'm saying the presumption of innocence is exhortatory, and then there are any number of applications. Oh yeah, the way in which the statute of limitations is now there's yeah. a, a game. Co- no, what happens a lot? I, guys, I want is- to be absolutely clear. There are dioceses, there are archdioceses, there are cardinalatial archdioceses in this country where a priest has a better shot at a fair trial and due process in Pyongyang than in the diocesan tribunals <laughs> well, of some of the places in this country. What happens sometimes is that, a, is that a, a penal process will start for a priest accused of some kind of misconduct. And stop thinking that it's all sexual because there are other kinds of misconduct that a priest can be accused of. But a priest is accused of some kind of misconduct. And a penal process starts. And a penal process is expensive, onerous, burdensome, cumbersome. You have to pro- usually export person, import personnel because you usually don't have the right people. It's it's a, it's from from the perspective of a former longtime diocesan administrator, it's a pain to do a penal process. And so what sometimes happens even through sort of negligence, is that a penal process starts and then it kind of fizzles out and the guy can be in limbo for a long time with no, no resolution. Maybe, maybe we're, there's we're a change to a passive, maybe We're using very nice language like, you know, it starts and then it fizzles out and he just kind of gets put... No, what happens is Father X in the diocese, I don't know, let's pick one totally at random. And Father is dragged from his parish. He is publicly denounced. And then he just disappears. He's told you can't wear clerics. But he's told you have to leave your That's the perspective from a defense attorney, and I totally get it. But I'm, I'm trying to say, from the perspective of a diocese, that can, that can, it can happen without malice that a trial, which is what we're talking about right now, a trial or administrative penal process can end up sort of in abeyance for a long period of time. Because and there the is nothing changes. more Orwellian than ruining a man's life without malice. Uh, I, Sorry, I, it's I just the process. I don't disagree. That's my point is why I'm saying it's good. So stop yelling at me about it. The point is... Um, from a diocesan perspective, there's a new bishop, there's a new JV, there's turnover among the personnel, and the thing, it is a, it is a scandal and a tragedy. But I'm saying it, that that it is a bureaucratic snafu is all the more scandalous. Um, that the guy sort of falls into a limbo and can stay there for a long time, and so now the game clock is ticking. If um, if the trial doesn't conclude, um, the statute of limitations on the crime can run out, and that's a big deal. That is a very big deal and a very important one. And I hope that Rome is, you know, we've been hoping to see, uh, and I have certainly been hoping to see Rome begin to force due process and force uh, dioceses to respect the rights of their clergy when they've been accused of something for which there is no proof, but there is, if you like, um, public scandal because an accusation of a particular kind made in public can leave an indelible mark. And the church in some places does just sort of go, well... We don't want to appear to be defending someone who's been accused of something bad, even right. if they didn't do it. That's just not a good look for us. So the better thing to do is to just, you know, stick father in a hole until he does the decent thing and applies to be laicized. It goes back to the notion of um, the church as its own, as a per, as a society. The church is a human community, and what happens a lot of times, and what the what the new book six I think tries to push against. What happens a lot of times is that. The society of the church, the appearance or reality of experiences in the society of the church, defers 
lays down to the appearance or society, uh, the appearance or expectation of the secular society in which the church lives. So that if the newspaper says you should be canceled because we have made this damning headline, too often the church is like, well, I guess the guy's going to be canceled, and we don't want to sort of do anything that will make it seem like we don't care. The new code says, no, we're going to care. We're going to operate very seriously to take these things seriously and to exercise discipline. We're not going to cut out the civil law. If something bad happens to you, call the police, period. But we're also going to internally address these things, and bishops are expected to do that. But at the same time, we're going to do it fairly and we're going to do it justly. And good, because all the more so that we're Christian should we do it fairly and justly. Because um, as John Paul II said, the accused too have the right to sort of live in this society in justice, which is predicated on charity. Yeah. So we we have all of this in the new book six, which is good and important. Uh, But it would be wrong to think that everything that sort of book six did was in relation to, for example, the clerical sexual abuse scandal. You know, there were other things that have been, you know, we've long been waiting to see codified. There's the so-called special faculties that Mm -hmm. were granted to the Congregation for Clergy Mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago, which are basically a means for a, a diocese to take action to discipline and eventually, if necessary, laicize priests who who do things that are not related to for example the sexual abuse of minors but just go missing who take just off. disappear take or off or get and, ordained as anglicans or something like that yeah or join yeah exactly get um you know join the local presbyterian community or or try and get married and you know run yeah. off with a parish secretary and they won't cooperate in any process and you can't find them and so the 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 church had um at the vatican special procedures special norms special mm-hmm. faculties for dealing with these cases and those have now been folded up into uh, the universal code, which is which is a good thing. It's a good tidying up exercise. Um, you know, it, it's it's good stuff. Um, so it's the good. What's the bad, JD? Oh, one other thing that's really good: the extension of the application of penalties to laity. This is a big deal. You know, the safe environment coordinator of a very large metropolitan archdiocese on the east coast said to me almost ten years ago. The real problem that we have is with, this is the safe environment coordinator, the guy who deals with a lot of sexual misconduct of various kinds in his diocese. This is well before McCarrick, and he says to me, the real problem that we have that exceeds the, far exceeds the pace of um, clerical sexual misconduct is the abuse of office in various ways of lay people who work in parishes. Now, I was shocked by that because I tend to think very, very well of lay people who work in parishes and schools, but, but in this very large metropolitan archdiocese, he said, we have this real problem with religious brothers and sisters who we might have a hard time punishing, with lay people who work in, in some of these institutions and we have a hard time dealing with in any meaningful way of being accused of things. And so um, the extension of um, these aspects of penal law to lay people is, I think, a very good thing. Now, again, I tend to be sort of pro-labor in the sense that I tend to sort of find a lot of solidarity with lay people who work in ecclesiastical institutions. But, you know, if we want to play, we got to play on a level playing field. And, and so sort of the, the leveling of the playing field, I think, is a good thing. I, I would agree with that, too. And also, lay, lay people who are at-will employees of a diocese but have an ecclesiastical office now actually have, I think, more stability in office if they're accused yeah, they of something. Do. Because rather just than just being them, yeah. dumped, you know, they wouldn't be suspended. They would just be dumped, right? I mean, like, if you're a lay person and you have an ecclesiastical office and you're accused of something, you're out, right? But now, because, like, penal law applies to you, which means procedural law applies to you, which means like things like expense, suspensions apply to you, you actually, I think, have a little bit more um, security in your position in the course of being accused of something. But again, it's this idea, yeah, we're going to play, we're going to play seriously, and we're going to play justly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so so moving on to the bad, because while this is mostly good, vast majority of it good, I would say, there are things that I, I got 
I got problems with. Mm-hmm. And so one of them uh, is is this still ambiguous term of vulnerable adult, or rather I should say the term itself vulnerable adult, is no longer ambiguous and for that I'm grateful. So what we've had in the last 20 years is the is the recognition of a category of vulnerable adult. Um, which is placed next to and legally equivalent to minors in in the penal law of the church, particularly as it comes to you know accusations of abuse and crimes of abuse. Now, under the under the provisions of Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, which sort of governs, if you like, the major crimes in the church, a vulnerable adult was a very narrowly defined category, which was someone who habitually lacks the use of reason, basically someone with you know learning difficulties or in some way otherwise developmentally disabled, or someone with dementia, something like that. That you know, it was a, it was a very tight. Bracket. I think actually SST the English is a bad translation. I think it actually says has habitually imperfect use of reason, and the reason why that's an important distinction is because while it's much tighter than the thing that you're about to say, I think the Latin talks about habitually imperfect use of reason because um, it it is broader than someone who like is entirely irresponsible for themselves and includes someone who has a deficient capacity for reasoning right. with regularity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this has been the CDF, which is exclusively competent to hear abuse cases in the church. Um, this has been their their definition. That if you want to forward a case and say this is a case of sexual abuse in the church, here you know it, it, it's either against a minor or it's against a, a vulnerable adult, according to this definition. And there have been cases where um, they were sent to the CDF, and the CDF sent them back saying this this isn't. This case isn't ours. I don't know what you're talking about because mm-hmm. they've said, uh, well, this person was, you know, was a spiritual director and a spiritual directee, or this was, you know, um, an employer and an employee. And they said, well, this this ain't a vulnerable adult. This is bad. We're not saying you shouldn't and, do and something about it. Potentially criminal, but yeah, but not the way that this has been categorized as a person who habitually has the use of reason. Exactly. This is an abuse of power, but sort of legally different from. I I, I, I want to emphasize this because you and I have written about the stories of. The abuse of adults, you know, adults mm-hmm. who are in relationships of spiritual direction or other things. Yeah. And that behavior, you know, adults who have been groomed by their bishop or that behavior is aberrant and ought to be criminal. But the question is sort of how ought it be understood as, as being criminal and how exactly. ought it be classified. Right. And so according to the CDF document, they've, the CDF's operative law, they have said, this is bad. This is criminal, but this is not legally the same as the abuse of a child. Mm-hmm. And Which so is it is true in American criminal law, and you know. yeah, absolutely. So, so, so it's not our case to hear. Deal with it under the way. Send it to another Vatican congregation. Try it yourself under your own particular penal law, which I'm sure you've passed, Your Excellency, mm-hmm. because all the bishops did. Um, and and so this has been a thing. Then along came Vos Estes Lux Mundi after the McCarrick scandal, which came out with a far broader definition of a vulnerable adult, which right. included. Um, I uh, actually I'm going to get this up. Um, because this is, I don't want to paraphrase it. I think this is important. Yeah, it's too important to paraphrase. Okay. A vulnerable person means any person in a state of infirmity, physical or mental deficiency, or deprivation of personal liberty, where, in fact, even occasionally, limits their ability, limits their ability to understand or to want or to otherwise resist the offense. Now, the use of words here like even occasionally um, limits their ability to understand or to want or to otherwise resist the offense. Now, the, you can have all sorts of instances of um, coercive sexual behavior where a person is has even occasionally a limited capacity to want what is otherwise a consensual, albeit 
wrong sexual encounter. So this throws the definition wide open. And there has been a tension between um, different Vatican congregations, particularly between the CDF, um, which has said, well, we got our own operative law here, and that's not our definition of vulnerable adult. And nothing in Vos Estes Lux Mundi says that our operative law in Sacramentorum Sagnitatis Tutela is to change. And the law of Vos Estes Lux Mundi, which creates this whole new class of person and um, and and category of, of sexual abuse, which is, and I want to stress this again, said in the law to be equivalent to the sexual abuse of a minor. Which is not necessary because one thing we should point out here is that one of the good things the law does is criminalizes abuse criminalizes of office. the abuse of office and the abuse of power. So right. um, it, the act itself is criminalized and that can be applied to a variety of situations. And therefore the creation of a class of persons in some ways, again, creates this jurisdictional, you know, confusion, this sort of trial confusion, which is, it seems, superfluous because the act itself of abusing office to to, to, to do something coercive in this way is a crime. Yes. Period. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so there and has been... And that would been... apply to a spiritual director who, you know, convinces yeah. his directee to do sexual things, etc. It would apply to these things, which the aim of which is to punish. Exactly. So. Right, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so what we have now in the new book six is we have um, minors, we have vulnerable adults defined more or less according to the CDF's operative definition, and then the separate thing of those granted equal protection by the law. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Granted, now it's an, it's an open case to say, well, why, why have this sort of third definition, those granted equal protection by the law, which would seem to be a reference to Vosestes. Um, it doesn't, at least according to my reading of the new book six, then say, and this is therefore gravior delicta, and then comes under the CDF, it seems to basically say there is, it's basically nodding to Vosestes and saying there is this thing called Vosestes. It does have this other definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is still criminal. And we are not, you know, abrogating Vosestes. Although it should be noted that during the press conference presenting book six, uh, the the president of the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts noted that Vosestes is ad experimentum. Vosestes is, is about to begin the third year of its three-year experimental period. So. And so we genuinely don't know if Vos Estes, it's obvious that something needs to be in this, you know, to, to exist for this new category, new understanding of categorical offenses. But we really don't know if Vos Estes is going to be the thing or not, yeah. especially because the new code picks up a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Or if Vos Estes yeah. will be sort of reissued with a much stripped down, uh, yeah. more narrow, basically defining, um, you know, criminal procedure, an investigative procedure for dealing with certain kinds of complaints, which is really what the body of the document is about anyway. Right. And so I question whether under the new, uh, with the new book six now in place, we need a lot of the sort of descriptive legislative parts of it and whether it, you know, can't be sort of pared back after the, after its experimental phase um, to be what it is most practically suited to being, which is a sort of investigator's charter on how to deal with mm-hmm. accusations of a right. certain kind. Yeah. So that remains to be seen. Um, but anyway, it's, it's not a good thing that it hasn't squared this circle, that it still has this sort of ambiguity of, well, is this a major crime or is it, is this reserved? Right. And the reason that matters is again, not to say that, well, you know, we, it's better to call it a lesser offense. No, it's just to say, does this belong exclusively to the competence of the CDF or not? Which if it does, if all of these belong to the competence of the CDF, it's a huge impediment to justice because the CDF's, pe- how many people work in the penal section of the CDF, Ed? I, I like, I, I'm like eight Eight. I think that's right. Yeah, less than 10 is what I think. I think they've hired some more adjuncts and like sort of sidebar things. So I think they're up to like 15 on paper, but more than half of them are part-time. Right, exactly. So so the problem with this categorization is that just if justice delayed is justice denied, seeing that the CDF is the only capable place of trying this gigantic swath of cases that the church now says very emphatically and well should be tried, 
is a big problem. It's not yeah, possible. It's now, not, the CDF itself, when the CDF takes the case, it, it can order back a trial in the diocese or even an administrative penal process in the diocese, et cetera. But still, that the that the CDF is the gatekeeper for all of that, essentially means that the CDF is going to be the bottleneck for all that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the sort of compromise that's been worked out prior to the book six publication is basically say, well, things that the CDF bounces back and says, this doesn't accord to our definitions get sent where appropriate, either to the Congregation for Clergy or to the Congregation for Bishops for Handling. And that seems to be working out quite well. Yeah. So hopefully that will that will sort of shake out. But again, mm-hmm. this was the thing that I was really looking for book six to just solve mm-hmm. and take off the table, and it didn't. And I think that's pretty much a bummer. Yeah, um, it is. Now there's room for it to solve, because this sort of Vosestis thing is plugged into it, and so there's room for it to be solved. But it, right. it, it could be understood as a punt. Yeah. So there's that. The other thing that I didn't particularly like was the the sort of reemphasis and recriminalization of violations of the pontifical secret. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pope Francis has already sort of waived the application of the pontifical secret for a lot of stuff to do with people who bring forward accusations of sexual abuse as victims, um, which is good. But you know, the ordinary operative um, daily life of the curia is under the pontifical secret. You know, mm-hmm. you've got okay. basic, you know, sort of top secret classification and even, right. you know, confidential classification and all of that's fine. Mm-hmm. The church is a sovereign state as well as a complete society and a certain measure of confidentiality is necessary and right. And they certainly have the ability to enforce it. And they certainly should have the ability to punish um, malicious and, um, you know, uh, badly motivated attempts to sabotage the 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 functioning of the of the curia and the church in that way but what the church doesn't have is any kind of whistleblower protection or any kind of mechanism for internal reporting which is you know like we very often are given um you know a lot of people break the pontifical secret while talking to us uh for different stories and quite a few of them uh work in different vatican dicasteries and i'm grateful to them doing it and the reason that they do it is not because they get to see their name in print in fact on the other they don't get to see their name in print and they would be worried if they did they don't even want the implication of it but the reason why they do it is because they don't have an effective mechanism and lots of people who work in the church will tell you this at every level of the life of the church there is not an effective mechanism um, to raise a complaint a complaint about um, your boss the pastor your boss the bishop your boss the prefect your boss the um, general secretary of the conference for that matter or the major superior and there's not an effective mechanism to do that that gives you workplace protections the kind of ordinary workplace protections that are being incorporated into workplaces in you know american corporations certainly in american government certainly in governments of other places certainly in places like the military there is no whistleblower policy in a, at a universal level in the life of the church. Now, dioceses may have it, but there's no whistleblower policy in, in the in the universal life of the church. And that means that people, if the maxim of vos estis lex mundi in the last few years is, if you see something, say something, there are many, many people who work in the church who don't feel like they have any place to say it. And yeah. then they have to make judgments about that. What, yeah. it, 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 what, what will be the mechanism of public accountability? And there are times when, to be perfectly honest, Ed, I wish that you and I, that, that journalists, I'm not going to just say you and I, but often we're the ones covering the thing. I wish that um, people, I, I wish that you and I, that people didn't feel like journalists had to be the mechanism of public accountability on these things because there was a better internal mechanism of accountability that could be relied upon. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm glad that we're able to do the work that we do, but we do the work that we do on investigative stuff like that because people feel like, and it is true, there is not another mode of ensuring uh, that justice, that you know, that 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 uh, problematic situations are resolved, or that justice is secured, and you know, th- there ought to be. At the end of the day, there ought to be. Yeah, 
I agree. All right, we're at an hour and a half, so we're going to do one more topic okay. of of the new book six under the sort of heading of quote unquote the ugly. Okay. Um, and uh, this is this is a topic like many in which you and I have tended to fall on opposite sides of the discussion. <laughs> and okay. I I would like to talk about the the decision, dare I say, the controversial decision, the surprise decision, although not surprising to me, of the new book six to retain latte sentencia penalties. Okay. Which are penalties which are, um, if you like, incurred by the one who commits the crime, uh, ipso facto. And it is your belief that we fall on different ends of the scale with regard to the application of you have You have in the past expressed, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a reservation about the usefulness and utility of oh, latte yeah, sentencia. Sure. I just assume that you agree with me because it's the right position. No, you're wrong. You're incredibly wrong. And not only are you wrong, you're demonstrably wrong because the church and the whole weight of every legislative power in the church agrees with me, which is why we still have them in the code. JD, can you tell me, tell our listeners, tell everyone, please, why do we have latte sentencia penalties in the code? Latte sentencia penalties in the code, which is to say penalties which are ipso facto incurred by the act having been done itself, um, are done... Why do we have them? Our vestigial legacy. No, um, our, I'm going to give the fair answer. Um, are intended to demonstrate the gravity and seriousness of certain acts such that um, they, uh, you know, they can incur a penalty immediately upon having been commissioned because they so disrupt ecclesial communion, good morals, the proclamation of the gospel or the witness thereof. There mm, That's, yeah, I don't, I don't dislike that um that is I, the I, reason well yeah I, I was hoping you were going to give me the actual definition from the code oh i could look to i mean i could go to the law if you i that's want. what i was hoping you're going to do is go to the go to the new law i'm i'm scrambling through it now to try and find where the law defines and explains why we have latte sentencia penalties because i saw it earlier today and i thought this is this is okay um, I, I wasn't sure I, I i was not sure actually that there was a canon in the new Code then, that would do. Okay. Um, 1318 seems to do it. Yes. penalties are to be established for outstanding and malicious offenses which are grave by reason of scandal or which cannot be effectively punished by Ferrandes intensity penalties. Yes, That's they are service to justice and to the reform of the offender, That's even what, what where say. it is not possible or practicable for the church to have either the means to know that the offense has necessarily been committed or to you know, proceed with a, a, a sort of ordinary judicial process. That's and what I think saying. this is a good thing. And this is what the code says. But we're going to finish, JD, since you have strong feelings about latest sentences. Can I penalties. say why I have strong feelings about them? Sure, go for it. Because I think that law which is not enforced. Um, oh, but it is enforced. <laughs> that It enforces itself. That's the beauty of it. Um, I think that law which is not publicly known to be enforced, which does not have visible and demonstrable effect, um, can manifest a certain kind of disrespect for the system of law itself. Oh, I'm laboring under a penalty, but nobody knows it, including possibly me, and there's no cop, and there's no effect of that penalty, is the kind of thing that makes the law itself seem more fantastic than real, and is the kind of thing that ma- that gives people a general disrespect for the law. The other thing that I think is that for a latex intensity penalty to be declared, 
there needs to be some engagement with the bishop anyway, so we might as well have a process. And for an occult latest intentia penalty to be remitted, the priest confessor needs to remember a bunch of things that he needs to do, or he needs to have been given the faculty by the diocesan bishop. And most of the time, if a latest intentia penalty is incurred, it is remitted by a priest confessor who has been given the faculty to remit latest intentia penalties. And so it happens, the priest says, now there's this other canonical thing that happened as a result of this, if he thinks that that's true, and he has to make a judgment sort of about free, internal freedom and compulsion about those things. And if you have incurred it, I'm going to give you this sort of formula of remission now. And so it, it all sort of happens, I think, without the kind of public catechesis and even the kind of catechesis for the offender himself or herself um, that orients a person towards the reform of life or the withdrawal of contumacy. Now, there are exceptions to that, but on the whole, I believe that latest intensity penalties, because they are so frequently undeclared and because the process by which they are remitted is so frequently confusing that I think they're probably not remitted often um, or remitted well or things like that, I believe they cause more confusion than they resolve. All right. I... Or, God forbid, a girl... Uh, has an abortion when she's 15 and thinks that she's excommunicated by the church and doesn't think that she can seek God's mercy because of it. Well, first of all, she wasn't old enough to sort of incur a penalty. And second of all, um, there's there's all these other questions about freedom and things like that. And I'm not immediately convinced that that understanding of hers has deterred her from having the abortion or helped her to seek God's mercy afterwards. I could be wrong. But from a pastoral perspective, I think that it may well compound her problems instead of resolving them. I am open to correction. And admittedly, my own sample size here, not as a priest, is is limited. Yeah, but also from, not a priest. So what do I know? No, but I'm saying from my perspective, I would actually, what I have heard a lot is the opposite that I've heard from a lot of priests who said, actually, they get people who come into the confessional to talk about abortion um, because they are aware of this idea may of well be right. an may automatic well, excommunication. It's like, oh my God, it's so serious. I should go and talk to a priest. I should go to confession. That it does do the thing it's supposed to do, which is it's medicinal. It pricks the conscience. I hope that and that's true. I, I just think that the system sort of, of remitting those penalties, there are dioceses in the United States where priests don't have the faculty to remit. I thought Pope Francis made it universal. For thought, the year of mercy, but did he extend it? I think he did. See, I think even Pope you Francis, and I, though, are kind of like, we think, we think. I mean, if you and I who are I'm 90% do this living sure in Canada, Pope okay, you're 90% basically... sure. But still, the point is, um, the point is, okay, if the Holy Father did that, then he streamlined the system a little bit. It, the code remains the code, you know what I mean? So the faculty to remit uh, um, a latest intensity excommunication sort of needs to be conferred, and there are dioceses that don't confer it. And those dioceses, you know, if there's confusion about that, I just, I, I'm not, I'm, I like the idea that it might prick the conscience. I'm grateful for that if it's true. I'm concerned that the back end may be more um, messy than is helpful. I, I could be wrong. Okay. I, I, I would argue the contrary, which is things which are, as the code says, so malicious or egregious that they require being classed as criminal offenses for which there is no other... I, I'm not a fan of dead law. There's no point in criminalizing something that you know you have no faculty to prosecute or investigate. And so then you say, well, why are we criminalizing something that we can't investigate or prosecute? Then you say, well, that's right. Legally speaking, it makes it a dead law, so we shouldn't have the law. So then you have egregious and criminal behavior, which is not classed as criminal. I think this is the only way of harmonizing those principles. And I am I am in favor for that reason. How? Okay. Yeah. And are. by the way, I just want to say one other thing, because I understand what you're saying. This is not sort of one of J.D.'s weird sort of liberal things. The well-known canonist Ted Peters, who by no stretch of the imagination is a sort of squishy liberal like J.D., holds the same position that I do on these. 
Go ahead. Uh, he does, although he also, like you, thinks that we should do away with the canonical form of marriage, and I consider you both squishy liberals for this. I don't want never... to do away with it. I want to do away with its requirement for validity, but we'll talk about marriage another day. We'll talk about marriage. Okay, so <laughs> because we have now... We, this is definitely, we're, we're into the, we're past the hour and a half mark. Oh, we're through the looking glass, baby. We're through the looking glass, but we do have to wrap this up. Um, not least because we're an hour over when I thought we'd stop recording and I have something else I have to do. One of the things I like about what's happening right now is that you're kind of hosting the show, which I've been trying to get you to do for years. It's just, we're just having a conversation. By the way, the friends. Eastern Code doesn't have latest intensity penalties. No, they do not. And again, I'm not suggesting that the presence of latest intensity penalties in the in the Latin Code is a function of divine or natural law, or we couldn't possibly live without them and the world would collapse around our ears if we didn't have them. I simply think that they have utility and that they are not, as has been argued by other people, either an anachronism or, you know, a holdover for some bygone era. I think they serve a legitimate purpose, both for justice and for mercy. And anyway, but since you have a bee in your bonnet about them, I thought we would, we would, we would just check. Um, JD, how many crimes are punished by late sentencia penalties in the new book six? And how many of them can you name? Let's make it a game. Five or six? Five or six. How many hit? Well, no, you've said five or six. Let's see if you can name five or six. I, I, okay, so abortion. Abortion is punished by late sententiae. Excommunication. Okay, so that, to be clear, I'm just not all late sententiae penalties are excommunications. There true. are interdicts, no, there are true. suspensions, there are, you this know. This is true. The okay. attempted um, ordination of a woman... Yes, attempting to ordain a lady. In fact, I'll give you two for that because um, you incur the latest intensity penalty both if you make the attempt and if you attempt to receive it. Yeah. So it's uh, two separate crimes. The crime of attempting to ordain a woman to any order and the crime of, as a woman, attempting to receive. Yes. So, okay. that's, uh, so you got three. Okay. There are more than five or six now that I think about it. Okay. So a cleric, actually a cleric or a layperson who... Uh, who um, simulates the the mass without being without being a priest so a deacon yes. who simulates the mass or a layperson who simulates the you mass. are correct now I, I hope you're playing honestly here and you're not scanning the law because that i'm not you're reading I'm something like i can see your eyes from here you a person who violates the seal yes direct violation direct of the seal. violation of the seal it's five throws away the sacred species yes through, or retains them for, uh, or retains them for sacrilegious purposes. Sacrilegious purposes. Okay. Um, what about? I'm looking away so that you know that I'm not looking. What about confecting one sacramental species without the other? Interesting. I that is a good guess. It's not true. It's nephos. I mean, it's totally. It nephos. is a massive crime, and you are to be punished with extreme penalties according to the gravity of the offense and other. Is it reserved? Is it? Is it? It is a reserved, but it is okay. not latte sententiae. Using violence against the Holy Father for purposes of... <laughs> yep, punching the Pope. Punching the Pope, but only only under certain conditions. You can punch no, the Pope. No, I think the Pope is pretty... don't do it for hatred or religion. No, Isn't I think you right? just... If you, if you hit the Pope, you're, it's it's all of a thing. They, they only start mitigating why did you do it for other ranks of clergy. Okay. Homicide? No. It is to be punished with a just penalty. Um, did we say the seal? You did say the seal. You got seven. <sighs> um... Simulating the sacrament of penance? Uh, attempting to give impart sacramental absolution when you can't, yes. 
Wouldn't you not call that simulating the sacrament of penance? It is, but I'm saying it's a separately articulated delict. Okay. Um, oh, Lefebvre? Lefebvre? <laughs> Illicit consecration <laughs> Lefebvre. of a bishop without Illicit a, pap- without a papal bishop. mandate? Yes, yeah, and uh-huh. I'll give you two for that because also, the, again, the reception of Episcopal consecration. Okay, illicitly. so a person who is illicitly consecrated bishop and the person who does the consecrating. So Lefebvre and then the guys who did it. Yeah, you got 10. A 10. I think I'm probably, I think I'm tapped. Okay, well, you, congratulations. You managed to make it to 50%. Wow, there are 20 latest intensity. There are 20 crimes wow. with a latest intensity penalty attached in the new revised book six. Wow. They are. You missed that the big That was a good th- game. I missed the you big missed three. You missed the big three, which I'm surprised. Right out of the gate. Apostasy, attempting, heresy, attempting, schism. Oh, apostasy, heresy, schism. The, the 750s. Yeah, the 750s. And one should remember those because those were, I think that the 750s were the very first edition. So after the 83 code, was in the 90s that John Paul added the 750s. Yeah. The the, the latest excommunication for apostasy, heresy, and schism. And uh, I think that was the first modification of the 83 code. Yeah, I think it was. Anyway, Attempting so, marriage, uh, a cleric who attempts marriage. Yes. So I'll just give them to, I'll give them all to you now. So that But I want that one. Okay. Uh, give me the 11. All right, I'll give you 11. Okay. You got 11. You, you, you just eked over 50%. Okay. Right. So they are, in no particular order, apart from the order in which they appear in the new book sex, apostasy, heresy, schism, violence against the Pope, uh, violence against... Is there a reason? Yeah, because he's the Pope. Okay, period. (laughs) No, it is not. I I will double check, but I'm pretty sure it is not... um, it is not attached to uh, a motivation. There, it is true that if you use violence against, for example, a priest, it has to be an odium fidei for it to be punished. Right. But okay. I don't. I think if you're using you violence against the pope, it's if presumed. If you punch and pontiff, period, that's that. I, I hang on. I'm going to delix against the church and ecclesiastical unity and authority. You know, they don't use the word delict in the new translation. It's really irritating. They use. I know it's irritating the crap out of me. Um. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh. Dum, dum, dum. Okay. A person who uses physical force against the Roman pontiff incurs a latest intensity as communication reserved for the apostolic see. Full stop. Period. If the offender is a cleric, other penalties, etc., etc., can be added. So no mitigating motivation or whatever. Just if you use violence against the Pope. Also, violence against a bishop. Okay. This will not, in fact, win you an excommunication, though only an automatic interdict. Okay. Uh, the attempt to ordain a woman. Uh, okay. The attempt to be a woman and be ordained. Okay. Uh, illicit consecration of a bishop and illicit reception of Episcopal consecration, mm-hmm. which you got. Throwing away or retaining sac- for sacrilegious purposes the sacred species, which you got. But not, not, the, not the consecration of one thing and not the other. No, that is not latte sentence. It, again, it is, a, it is a nefos est. It is very, very bad. The more you know. But, it, but the thing is, you don't need it because, J.D., attempted, conce- uh, attempted consecration of one species without the other is not likely to be an occult crime. It's going to be a public That's one. That's a so very you can good do a, point. You can have your process. You can have a ferende sentence, a penalty there. It's not necessary. Well, the more you know. Yep. Okay. So where were we up to? Okay. Uh, throwing away the species. Okay. Absolution of accomplice. Absolution of an accomplice. And a sin against the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. Confound it. You cannot do that. Direct violation of the seal you got. Reception of orders without demissorial letters. Oh, what about ordaining without demissorials? You, well, we'll get there. Um, (laughs) If you ordain a guy without demissorials, is he yours? No. Yeah. Even Um, if he's a deacon? I mean, even if you ordain him a deacon, is he yours? 
Not, not according. Well, maybe there's an argument there, but then again, you wouldn't be then. In, no, no, you can't be because the reason for this is this. It's the reception which gets the latte's intensity of penalty because by receiving orders without demissorial letters, you are ipso facto suspended from the order you have received. But here's my question. I totally get that. Where are you incarnated if you are ordained a deacon? Let's say you're at the NAC and, you know, some diocesan bishop is over there. So he's going to ordain every, you know, a bunch of guys because their bishop can't make it over, whatever, whatever. And there's no demonstration. Where are you incarnated? I'm not aware of that being. Uh, I'm not aware of that being stated exactly in the code. But I would think you break it, you buy it. Would be the. Legal I would think thing. so too. But anyway, even if even if you are incarnated by the guy who ordains you without demissorial letters, you are suspended from the order received immediately okay. upon yeah, A person who comes forward for sacred orders bound by some censure or irregularity which he voluntarily conceals. Oh, so if you volunteer, if you if you ha- if you have a, ma- a wife, I mean, if you if yes. you have a wife. Now, it can't be a civil marriage, can't be a civil marriage, but if you have a wife, an actual wife, and you are not destined for the for the diaconate, but for the presbyterate, and you have concealed that, or if you have some other irregularity, a mensi or something like that, you are... Uh, Ipso facto suspended from the order you receive. That's interesting, because wouldn't the irregularity itself, a person who has an irregularity is irregular for the exercise of order. So it's interesting that they have to say that because it ex- it sort of exists already in the establishment of the irregularity. Yes, but this is also establishing as a crime to so to so conceal. This is like saying if you're on the injured reserve list, you're suspended from playing. It's like, well, I'm on the injured reserve list. I yeah, but it's play. still and well considered a sort of moral fine in addition for trying to present yourself I, as see, fit to play. This is what when I don't couldn't. like about it. It's like, hey, we've already taken you out, and now we're going to take you out again and also slap you on the wrist. But it's like, I'm out deal with it also false denunciation <laughs> of a confessor oh that's a big one why that's a big deal everybody the false denunciation of a confessor if you say for example that your confessor solicited you for some illicit activity in the context of the confessional or something like that is that he can't defend himself the seal he cannot he Did, just, and this is an interesting thing. seal prohibits him from defending himself against your false denunciation that's cruel it is cruel. And this is actually the false denunciation of a confessor. You know how in the church, um, the church is never going to make you make a manifestation of con- a public mm-hmm. manifestation of conscience. Mm-hmm. It will never cause you to publicly confess your sins mm-hmm. in any way. Or, mm-hmm. With this one exception, you cannot receive valid absolution, absolution until you, you have yes. publicly confessed the false denunciation of a confessor. Because it's wrong. Because it's wrong because your sin is not just against the confessor, but against the sacrament right. itself. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So, false denunciation of a confessor, a cleric who attempts marriage, automatic suspension. Okay. And a religious who does the same, automatic interdict. Mm-hmm. And finally, one who actually procures an abortion. Yes, indeed. Those are your 20. Well, I got 11. Well, you I did. got 10, and then he gave me another. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you did okay, all right. That was good. Well, thanks. Well... You've been listening, everyone, to a very special Super Bowl episode of the Pillar Podcast in which we have discussed the promulgation of the new Book 6 of the Code of Canon Law. Hopefully you've learned something about Book 6, a little something about the history of canon law, and a little bit of something about Ed's undisclosed location. If you've forgotten already, I'm your host and Pillar co-founder, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, my other co-founder, Ed Condon, and we will be back next week. You'll have things you want to talk about. We will, too. Adios. Thank you.